there's a huge inherent power balance that exists right now between the big tech behemoths and the everyday user. And, you know, with great respect um, to Meta for setting up their oversight board, you know, we've dealt with tens of thousands of reports and have gotten outcomes, whereas I think it was last year they had taken on something like 12 cases. This is Click to Trust, a podcast that delves into the intricate challenges of protecting online community. Last time on Click to Trust, we gained a greater understanding of the Digital Services Act, a piece of EU legislation that will go into effect on February 17, 2024, aiming to increase the responsibility of digital service providers for the content on their platform. In this episode, we'll speak directly with the people who helped create legislation similar to the DSA to understand its impact in the UK and Australia. But we'll start with Tom Siegel, who explains the tension this new legislation places on platform operators, who must now balance their commercial interests with new regulatory standards. This episode's going to be dedicated to online safety compliance and online safety regulations, basically, specifically the Digital Services Act, the Online Safety Act in the UK and Australia. And I'm going to spend some time sitting down with the people who actually put these regulations together and some of the people who are actually making sure they're that companies, specifically online platforms, are being compliant. But what I wanted to talk to you about is more, how did we get to this point where we need to have online regulations and what this means for the online zeitgeist? I mean, we ended up in a place that I don't think anybody wanted to end up in, where platforms trying to do a really good job and regulators and governments feel just not enough is being done and it's a difficult situation. Do you think that online platforms, these big online platforms, Instagram, Twitter, etc., really care about the safety of their users or are they just going to follow regulations because they have to follow regulations? No, I do think they, they all care to some degree. The question is, how far do you go to achieve that desired experience for your users? We live in a world where user-generated content gets created in a blink of an eye. A lot of it gets generated. Anybody could sign up with a new account in an instant, and anybody can try to post or interact in any way they want. And there are unlimited opportunities for amazing, creative, uplifting experiences, but also for harmful and frustrating and uh, and negative ones as well. And so it is a very challenging uh, situation to try to anticipate or take care of these very dynamic and very large-scale kind of digital systems. So platforms are certainly trying. They're investing a lot of resources. They've been investing a lot of time. I don't doubt the intention of the trust and safety teams. But obviously, if you look at the results, I think we can all agree that they are falling short in terms of being able to provide a safe and responsible environment for these. In what ways do you think they are falling short? Like, how could it be better? As a user, it's still way too easy to be harmed and to to be exposed to risky and objectionable interactions that may not be appropriate from that user's perspective. That starts with the very, very much known account takeovers where someone may log into your account. Someone could try to pretend to be you People may be harassing you specifically. These are very personal, direct attacks. They're happening all the time. But then there are the more, the experience more geared towards the general kind of group of people where you may be singled out because of being part of a certain demographic. 
or because of certain beliefs you have or the way you look. And it makes a very treacherous field online where from one day to the next, you're just not sure what you're going to encounter. The most challenging and the most dangerous aspect of it, in my opinion, is actually the personalization algorithms that exist that really try to amplify certain experiences that an, an automated system has identified as being my preference or being particularly exciting for me. And these amplifications can take very negative turns. They can really impact us in, in, in a severe manner, and they're not very well understood in terms of how they work and, and the impact. To gain a better understanding of the impact of legislation, like the Digital Services Act, we turn to Sophie Parker, Online Safety Senior Strategy Manager at Ofcom. Ofcom is the official regulator for the Online Safety Act, a UK legislation which is similar to the DSA, as it intends to make platforms responsible for user safety, particularly for children. I spoke to Sophie about the Online Safety Act and how it is an attempt to strike a balance between freedom of expression and user safety. On October 26, 2023, a new online safety regulation was passed in the UK called the Online Safety Act. Much like the Digital Services Act, the Online Safety Act was designed to make social media companies more responsible for their user safety. However, unlike the DSA, the UK's Online Safety Act takes a more explicit approach by defining what is legal and illegal within the UK's jurisdiction and provides greater detail on the actions that platforms should take in response. These changes are likely to deviate from the way that user-generated content platforms, for example, currently handle terms of service violations. In a further departure from the DSA, the bill enlists the services of Ofcom, an independent yet government-endorsed watchdog that oversees various public media to take charge of regulatory enforcement. We asked a number of Ofcom to join us today so we can learn a bit about how the Online Safety Act will be regulated and shed more light on these new online laws as a whole. So Sophie Parker has carved a unique path in the world of digital policy and international relations with a career spanning from the UK, US, and Latin America. She's an expert in navigating the complex intersection of technology, law, and policy, and is currently the online safety senior strategy manager at Ofcom, where she's at the forefront of implementing the UK's trailblazing online safety act. Hi, Sophie. Hey, Carla, how are you? Thanks so much for inviting me on. So, Sophie, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Ofcom and what Ofcom is exactly for those who are not listening in the UK? Yeah, so my role at Ofcom as the online um, safety senior strategy manager is to really think about the legislation at the time we called it the bill and now it's the act to think about the legislation and the act and then to think about our role as Ofcom, the communications regulator, and how are we going to actually operationalize this huge, large act? And just to pause for a second, but I thought it'd be helpful to just give you a few stats to pull away about just the sheer size of the legislation. So it covers all services that are active in the UK, irrespective of where they are in the world. So by estimates, that's over 100,000 services in scope. So it's really big and lofty. And even more so, it's had like a, a long time in Parliament. It's had two monarchs oversee it. It's had two parliamentary sessions. It's had two, it's been overseen by two uh, government departments, both DCMS and DCIT. Um, it's had four prime ministers since that white paper I mentioned was published. It's had, I think, over 424 amendments in the House of Lords. And it's been in uh, parliament for 546 days. So it's had a lot of time 
to be amended, to be debated, to be contested. And I think you've seen that as professionals working in the trust and safety space. I'm sure you've seen that debate come alive in, in the media and what we've read in the news. My job in that context is to think about the legislation and Ofcom's role, which you asked me about, which is the UK communications regulator and how we as a regulator can actually operationalize and strategize how we're going to chart a path forward. And I think just to mention that I, I'm American originally, and I think American regulation is different from UK and EU regulation. I never really thought about, I think, as an American citizen about how when some sort of big piece of legislation passes, there is an agency that actually has to carry out that work. And it, it's not the legislation itself is on a prioritized list and a how to guide as to how to actually do that work. But so my job is thinking through how do we do this work? What are we going to prioritize in our time to make sure that we're actually effective in this regime? We can't push on everything at all times every single day. So there's uh, certain aspects here that we're going to double down on. And this is something that we mentioned in our online safety approach paper that we published on Royal Ascent. But it goes over our four key strategic aims, which are governance, design and operations, choice and transparency to drive trust. And so those core strategic aims give us the right guiding light to our work to make sure that we actually effectively implement this regime. Could you give us a little bit of history on the Online Safety Act? Yeah, definitely. It's kind of helpful to to zoom out a bit and just provide a bit of context. So in sum, the Online Safety Act is a significant step towards creating a safer life and a safer environment for all UK users. But it was really born out of this need to address safety risks to users online. It's not news today to any of us that today's most widely used and best loved services are those that are user to user and search companies. Uh, we all use those every single day. And of course, there's great benefits, open communication and the ability to share videos and photos, new forms of community and connection. But there are real harms as well. This includes illegal harms and the use of online services to enable child sex exploitation, sharing terrorist content and inciting hatred online, committing fraud and allowing children to stumble upon content that is harmful to them. So this act was really born from those risks and an understanding that those risks are real. And so originally there was an online safety white paper produced by government in, in 2019. And since then, it's gone through multiple sort of iterations and amendments, which I'll get into in a second. And it then achieved royal assent, as you mentioned, on the 26th, 26th of October. And, you know, just to pinpoint exactly what the act does now in its sort of final form, the act makes companies that operate this wide range of online services, including the likes of user to user, like social media, search services and pornographic services, legally responsible for keeping people, especially children, safe online. How, at what point did Ofcom become involved in, were you involved at all in, was Ofcom involved at all in, in creating this legislation and putting things together or did it happen like towards the end? It's a great uh, question. From my understanding, we've been involved in the process sort of from, from the beginning. The white paper itself was written by the government and the advisors within government, but Ofcom at different points in this process has advised as to what they think is best here. For a while, I think the, the phraseology was that the government was minded to appoint Ofcom. And I think that was really a result of our sort of previous or historical regulatory role in broadcast and media. It was and also our, our regulatory role in video service providers, which was something that the EU also had in its it, when we were part of the EU. 
Uh, we, we regulated video service providers, and then we also have the same legislation already in place in the UK. So there was some experience regulating online platforms that we had under our belt. And then we also understood sort of the importance of freedom of expression and how to preserve freedom of expression to, to UK citizens. And so I think that was how we got involved in this entire process. But throughout it, I think Ofcom's a part of the conversation, or at least had a seat at the table in this conversation. And one of the things I was going to mention, which I'll also go into more, was just the differences between, I believe, how the DSA has sort of gone about its approach versus how Ofcom's gone about it, or the UK government's gone about its approach. The DSA, as I understand it, or the EU, is really keen on getting the legislation on the books. But Ofcom, they've been funding, the government's been funding Ofcom for quite some time now before even the legislation is passed to make sure that we have the robust team and expertise in place to actually hit the ground running when the legislation passed. So you will have seen that the DSA was a little bit earlier, but I think the Online Safety Act also um, has just now passed, which is great, but it also has the right sort of team in place to actually do, do this work in earnest. So would you say it has more teeth than the DSA? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think it's a time will tell thing because it's both are so new. The DSA has, they've already started in on some companies and started to pull out some fines and some enforcement action against companies. So I think that one thing to say is that when designing the proposals that we've included in our first illegal harms consultation, which we published, which was a, a major set piece of the online safety regime on the 9th of November, just ensuring that the proposals were in alignment with the DSA and that there was alignment that we could actually point to and, and drive was a key part of our considerations. It wasn't an afterthought. So I think we understand from an industry perspective, it's really important that these regulatory regimes are coherent and harmonious with each other where we can. Yeah. Could you give an example of how Ofcom would work to regulate, to help create a safer internet, let's say, from the perspective of somebody who works at an online platform, let's say, and then from the perspective of a user, what can they expect to have to do or to see from Ofcom? Yeah, so from... I think maybe it's helpful to also just talk a bit about maybe the nuts and bolts of the actual app yeah. itself and like how will it actually work to make the internet yes, exactly. safer. Yes, at its core, this is about services taking on responsibility for the safety of their users. And that's, I think, in my view, that's a departure from where we as a society as a whole. So it's a really novel, it's a really novel idea. And this is also part of the DSA's approach as well. The precise duties in the Online Safety Act vary across services, but by and large, most service providers will need to carry out risk assessments, and that's to assess the risk of harm to all users from illegal content. And then they'll also need to assess the risks to children. And then once they've assessed those risks, they need to do something about it. So they need to take effective steps to manage and mitigate the risks identified by those risk assessments, and they should be proportionate and appropriate. That the core distillation of what the regime is. There's more details and more aspects, transparency reporting for certain categorized services and what have you. But at its core, that is the main mechanism as to which we're hoping to have change and where we're trying to change how services operate. There's three phases on a timeline to the implementation of this regime. The first is tackling illegal content, which I mentioned earlier. That was set up by a consultation we published on the 9th of November, and that's the illegal content component of the second is content that is harmful to children, including access to pornography. And on the 5th of December, we published 
or part five guidance, which goes into that a little bit more. And then the third is implementing the categorization duties for services. So those duties are for certain services that meet a certain criteria, and that's related to either their number of users or the risks of harm. And it's extra duties basically to um, publish transparency reports and empower users to control the content they see. I won't go into sort of all the nuts and bolts of all the different consultations and what have you, but I think from a services side, what it will look like is looking at the different consultations that we have. These include codes of practice and guidance, and those codes of practice are basically how services can comply with these different duties that I just outlined across those three phases. And there's no obligation to actually apply to the codes of practice. They're not mandatory and services can take alternative steps. But just to give you one example of what this could look like in practice is, as I mentioned, the main priority or one of our main priorities is protection of children. And one of the measures we've recommended here is hash matching in the illegal harms consultation. This is something that's already done by a lot of firms. What we hope is happening is that by applying it more consistently, it's really raising the floor of minimum standards. And so that's going to have a real impact on really horrible harms that, that kids can endure online. So that's how, from a service level, we think those changes could could occur, could impart change. That's the best way to say it. Could enact change. I wanted to go back to something you said in your previous answer, which was to mention freedom of speech. Could you talk a little bit about which measures were taken to protect freedom of speech when this legislation was being put into place? Also important to zoom out and provide context on because you mentioned the intro and it's helpful. I think most folks, maybe most UK listeners are aware of Ofcom as the UK communications regulator. They probably know Ofcom as like the people you complain to when you saw something on Love Island and you didn't like it, or you saw something on the news and what have you. And it's mainly our broadcasting duties. But just to give a wide scope, our mission is to make communications work for everyone. And that really covers a wide range of areas. It's spectrum posts, communications, network and comms, broadcasting, video service providers, and now online safety. So there's a big, uh, broad bucket of stuff in there. And to be really clear about what this online safety work will be, this is not about Ofcom policing the internet. We aren't going to be assessing individual pieces of content, but instead target improvements at the systems and processes level. Um, and I'll be honest, I took a really long time to think about what that actually meant as a regime, because I, I think it's such a fundamental part, like I said, of how the Internet operates. And it's so core. When we were writing our online safety approach publication, which I mentioned, this is not a content moderation regime and we're not reviewing individual complaints and we're not going to be directing services to remove content. This is about targeting systems and processes within the services themselves. And I think it's important to say the hypothesis there, it's that seeking these sort of systemic improvements will reduce risks at scale rather than focusing on the individual instances. And so the reason why I bring that up is because I think freedom of expression is the core sort of piece there. It's at the heart of everything we do. And we take it really seriously about protecting and balancing users' rights to freedom of expression and privacy and balancing that with user safety. Your direct question, which is a great one, is how have you actually done that? Or like, how is that actually factored into your work? With each codes and guidance that we publish, every single measure is put to the test against freedom of expression. So throughout all of our codes and guidance that we recommend, 
we ensure that we are considering freedom of users, freedom of expression and um, privacy when recommending any measure. So it's sort of a, the philosophical guiding light to how we're approaching this regime. And that's why I think the systems and processes led approach is so key. And specifically, a lot of the work that we've done on video service providers is a great example of not taking down individual pieces of content and not and not rummaging through freedom of expression for UK users, but instead working with services to target their systems and their processes to make improvements to user safety. Yeah, that's super interesting and a really fair point. So it seems like there's almost a trend of, and this might be the wrong way to say it, of online safety regulations popping up all over the globe. So we have the EU, the UK, Australia, there's several local laws in the US. I think there's something coming up in Singapore as well. And they're all happening at a very similar time, but they're all different from each other. And they're all done by different people and regulated in different ways. What sort of started this? Like, when did this start? Why is it happening now? You're right. I think they are happening all at the same time. Yeah, I think there's been several sort of keystone moments as the general public, if you will. Some of it, I think, largely related to politics and just the deep schisms that we've seen in society. And some of it just fueled by we use it all day long and we're on it all day long. And our online nation report showed that recently. We're online all the time and, and we know this. So I think it's just a, a, a symptom of us using these technologies every single day and increasingly so. The pandemic sort of expedited those trends anyways. And then just some of the, the negative impacts you know, so many positive impacts that technology has. And I think it's really important to just pause to say as a regulator, our role isn't to stop innovation or to stamp down on innovation. It, it, we're here to protect users and consumers. For example, like the our online nation report that we published a few weeks ago said that I think misinformation, if I'm quoting correctly, is the sort of most prevalent harm or one of the most prevalent harms that UK users experience online. Yeah, none of this is like new news or new information. But I do think that, there, yeah, it has been a global reckoning of, of how to, like I said, strike the right balance between protecting users, but also I think protecting sort of the core fibers or the core tenets of the internet, which have a lot to do with the freedom of expression piece I was mentioning earlier. So this is an iterative process that is going to take a lot of time. One thing you mentioned, which is our regulators talking to each other, they are, which is great, because I think there can be sometimes a misconception that regulators are behind the aid ball or slow to the uptick. But recently, there's been a lot of efforts, both domestically in the UK through the DRCF, the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, and internationally, to make sure that regulatory sort of efforts, information, and best practices, tools, challenges are shared. For example, there's the Global Online Safety Regu Regulators Network. And as I understand, it's the only global space dedicated exclusively to coordination amongst regulators on online safety policy, supervision, and enforcement. And Ofcom co-founded the network in 2022, and we're the chair in 2024. So I think it's, it really shows that we're committed to not just working in a silo, not just working individually with our head down, but actually collaborating and, and coordinating with other key regulators in this space, partly because these challenges are not going to really respect jurisdictional borders or they don't really care that it's only a UK 
regime. These are global companies. And so we need to have eventually global consensus and global approaches to actually deal with these issues. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. What would you say to to people who are concerned about these new regulations? Because the the whole point of the internet is this freedom of information, just like being able to share what you want with who you want. And when you start putting up barriers for people who believe that's what's happening, it can be a bit scary. It's almost like applying real world laws into the online sphere, which is, in my opinion, completely fair and should be used to create a safer environment for users. But for people who might be concerned about that, what would you tell them? I understand that. I understand that sort of concern. I think to quell those types of fears, one is that Ofcom's been a regulator for a very long time as it turns to regulator history or as it, when you're thinking about regulator history. We've regulated the telecoms industry. We then regulated broadcast and media. And now we're regulating online safety. And throughout all of that, I think the takeaway is that we're really evidence-led and the evidence always brings us to really proportionate responses. I think if somehow the end result of us regulating all the online world or regulating online platforms and services was a clampdown on the individual's freedom of expression, we've done something completely wrong. And so I think just to reiterate and reemphasize that freedom of expression and protection of privacy and users' privacy is sort of tantamount to our entire approach. It's not just a philosophy, it's, it is embedded into how we operate. For example, we sent and worked with the ICO on um, many of our proposals in the illegal harms consultation to make sure that protection of privacy and safeguarding user privacy was upheld in all of the proposals we recommended. That's built into the approach already. The other piece I will say is that a huge part of this systems and processes-led approach is going to focus, I think, or a huge uh, tool within it is the transparency component for me. And I think transparency is a really important tool in our arsenal. It's going to take a little bit of time, though, to really see the the fruits of that labor, so to speak. But like I mentioned, transparency is a, a, one of our core strategic aims. And we, we want to make sure that transparency helps to ensure this regulatory framework is trusted by all stakeholders. Because I think that actually points to point you made, which is there may be a bit of distrust here, whether it's between users and the actual services they use or government and regulators and all the different sort of stakeholders involved. There's a little bit of a a trust gap going on here. And so I think transparency will be really pivotal to that. One, just on the transparency of the actual systems and processes or trust and safety measures that the services themselves have in place. To date, online services haven't really faced any comprehensive regulatory oversight of their trust and safety practices. So they leave the public in the dark as to how they make decisions and design their products and how they affect people. So the act gives Ofcom the tools to actually implement this, including mandatory transparency reporting. I'll just caveat to say I'm aware that many online services already publish voluntary transparency reports, and that's great. And I think that's a really useful thing. And like I mentioned, a huge part of this is just raising the minimum standards and making sure everybody across the board consistently does those things. But these reports currently only provide a partial account of what's happening inside companies. So the Act gives Ofcom, or we're required to under the Act, to issue transparency notices, and this is to a subset of in-scope platforms. And these can be tailored to specific services, so we can ask for different data and different formats. 
And as a result, adjacent to this, Ofcom also has to publish its own transparency report based on the information we receive from the services platform transparency reports. And I think that's just to say that there's transparency on the service side that we're going to be pushing for. And that's going to be really helpful because product changes can happen at this global level. A successful transparency regime might be able to nudge platforms into making changes that have a real impact. But then there's also going to be transparency on the regulator side as Ofcom. Um, and we're accountable to the public and parliament. And so we plan to be fully transparent in all of our work and decisions. And we encourage different services and, and stakeholders to actually respond to the consultations we put out because this is part of the iterative, proportionate approach that we plan to take. This trend toward online regulation is prevalent not just in the UK and Europe, but around the globe. For a perspective on how online regulation has already impacted users, Tom spoke with Australian eSafety Commissioner Julie Inman Grant. Together, they discussed the work being done by the eSafety Commission, criticism of online safety regulations, and the potential for global collaboration to establish common standards. Julie, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. And first question that is actually probably on many on our list on mind is what does an eSafety Commissioner do? What does the role entail? And how did you end up in this position? It's a really interesting path that you took. Oh, wow. Well, I'll try and give you the abbreviated version because I've actually worked at the intersection of technology, public policy, and safety since the, the mid-1990s. Actually, the early 1990s when I started a role in Congress working on social justice issues. And my congressman came in one day and said, we've got this small little software company in our electorate called Microsoft. So could you work on teleco and telecom, you know, and technology issues along with these social issues? So I started working on the, the issues before there was an internet. And then I was hired at what I call tech policy ground zero by Microsoft to be one of their first government relations reps, right when we were considering things like the Communications Decency Act, the antitrust case against Microsoft did take up a big part of my job there. And then after five years in, in Washington, D.C., I was sent out to um, Australia to start corporate affairs and public policy and philanthropy issues here for Microsoft. And that expanded across Asia Pacific. And then that took me back to the corporate headquarters to run a global role for privacy and online safety. After 17 years, I took some time off after having three kids, and then I went to Twitter and spent some time at Adobe, and then the, the world's first online safety commissioner role came up. I'd always been passionate about online safety. I tried really hard at the companies I was at to really change things from the inside out, be a safety antagonist, uh, if you will. Um, and it was just a unique opportunity to really try and make the online world a safer, more positive place. And one of the requirements for the rule was actually that the e-safety commissioner have technology background. The prime minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, was a technology uh, entrepreneur himself and had been ICT minister. And so wanted someone who would know how the technology companies thought they would understand what their what they were capable of, but what their limitations were as well. And so that sort of understanding has come in, in very handy. And the rule really does entail, I'm an independent statutory authority. I'm the regulator, but I'm also the educator and coordinator of online safety across the, the country. 
I think the creation of the e-safety commissioner was one of the earliest signs of this increasing trend that we're seeing towards more regulatory involvement in online safety in general uh, across the world in many markets. Um, again, for, for those of our listeners who don't, aren't as close to it as you, know, you, you and I are every day, what triggered that? Why do you think there is more regulatory interest and involvement? And where do you see the trend going in the foreseeable future? Well, listen, I think it's for those of us who've worked in trust and safety for a long time, we often see that certain events or scandals often trigger government action and regulatory scrutiny, which isn't doesn't always ensure that you end up with the best policy outcomes. But in in the case of, of the establishment of e-safety, um, there was a well-known entertainer named Charlotte Dawson, uh, Australia's next top model, who was very open about her mental health struggles. And uh, she was terribly bullied um, on Twitter at the time and uh, had a nervous breakdown, um, got off the platform, got some treatment, came back on, and uh, the online abuse was terrible. And at the time, I was interviewing for the public policy and safety role at Twitter that was just, they were just establishing a presence in Australia due to pressure from the Australian government. And she tragically took her own life. That started a petition that went to government. And that is what spurred the development of the it, then Children's Safety Commissioner in 2015. And as I mentioned, Malcolm Turnbull, who was then the ICT minister, thought, well, okay, we already have functions within the government. We've got a hotline. We're dealing with child sexual abuse material. We have strong hosting laws that prevent the hosting of illegal content. Nobody can argue that children aren't more vulnerable. So we started with the online content scheme um, and then a youth-based cyberbullying scheme. And the way that that works is if a child is being seriously cyberbullied and they report to an online platform and it doesn't come down, then we as eSafety serve as a safety net. And the child or the parent or the educator can then report to us. That triggers an investigation. And if it meets the threshold of being seriously harmful, humiliating, intimidating, or harassing, um, or it violates the company's terms of service, we prefer to work informally with the platforms. And we have a lot of cooperation. We have a 90% success rate in terms of getting seriously harmful cyberbullying content taken down, but then we can use formal removal powers if a, a company is resistant. We also have tools, remedial tools, like end, end user notices. And I just used those last year, uh, for instance, against six 14-year-old boys who were piling on um, a 14-year-old girl, sending her death and rape threats um, at a pretty concerning um, tenor and velocity. Um, and this is essentially a cease and desist that I delivered through the parents and the school to say, one, you have to take this down. You have to apologize. You have to promise that you won't. You need to send an apology letter. And this was appropriate for young people because we don't want them to be thinking that they can abuse people with total impunity. So that's been a very successful uh, scheme. And we've had a number um, added on, including an image-based abuse scheme where we are able to remove intimate images and videos uh, uh, that are posted without consent. That does not require reporting to the platform first, because that is a kind of um, privacy invasion and online harm that requires really rapid um, removal. 
This also includes things like deep fakes, and we've taken remedial action a number of times, including taking on a man who had um, created deep fake image-based abuse of well-known women and refused to take them down. So he's now sitting in jail cell up in Queensland. These are really powerful examples of how regulatory involvement actually leads to a safer world. And our online and our real worlds are increasingly combined and, and meshing. And so this is a good reminder how it actually does directly impact the lives of people when the right regulations get set and then informed, uh, enforced. It really does. And if you think about the realm of online harms and what, say, victims or targets in the U.S. experience right now, they often face unresponsive platforms that don't have any incentive um, and may not give a a user an opportunity um, to resubmit their case. And we know that these companies receive very high volumes of reports of abuse. They often miss cultural context and other things. We also tend to see reluctant law enforcement, and they've got to prioritize issues. And so very often we have people come to us who've gone to law enforcement in the first instance, and they've just told them to get off the internet or have sort of minimized the harms that they're they're experiencing. Um, And there are also just a range of ineffective safety tools that exist. So what the role that e-safety serves as a safety net here through our cyberbullying image-based abuse and adult cyber abuse schemes means that Australians have a place to turn when things go wrong online and companies aren't responsive. There's a huge inherent power balance that exists right now between the big tech behemoths and the everyday user. And, you know, with great respect to Meta for setting up their oversight board, you know, we've dealt with tens and th- of thousands of reports and have gotten outcomes, whereas I think it was last year they had taken on something like 12 cases. And that's just not going to remediate the harm. And the more quickly re- we, we are able to take down the content, the more we can provide mental and emotional, more a uh, greater sense of well-being and relieve that distress. Critics of online safety regulations point out to you know, government involvement in regulating speech or the fuzziness of some of these regulations you know, and some of them not really clear what is actually out or the very high or the increased cost of enforcement are sort of really things that kind of seen as, as sort of the, the counterpoint from particular from platforms and, and other groups. What would be your response to some of that criticism? Of sure. Well, I mean, the Australian context the Australian context is uh, very different from uh, the American context, and I think I can say that as someone who, you know, who worked in con- um, Congress, is American by birth, and started my career there. The Australian government is online safety is bipartisan, and the decision they made in establishing online safety in 2015 and reforming our act in 2021 was that when online harm goes unchecked. Uh, then that can actually suppress speech. When it starts severing to the the range of online harm, then they are enabling us to take action when people report to us. And importantly, when young people are being cyberbullied or adults are experiencing cyber abuse, our job is not to be the content moderators of the internet. We're responding to complaints and we're triggering investigations. But Somebody has to be there as the safety net, but also to ensure that these companies are enforcing their terms of service and their rules. 
And frankly, that's not happening consistently. So we're really serving as that really important backstop and that conscience. And um, as I said before, we largely work cooperatively with the platforms in this area because, you know, content moderation is an imperfect science and they don't want bullying and toxicity and child sexual exploitation on their platforms. And so when a regulator points it out to them and we've got powers to be able to find them or um, use reputational levers to embarrass them, they're much more likely to take action. So we also have a range of transparency and accountability mechanisms ourselves in terms of what we're reporting. All of the decisions we make around investigations can be challenged at multiple levels. There's a tribunal, there's an ombudsman, and there's the federal court. So there are accountability mechanisms to, to make sure that we are doing the right things. But we're, we're responding to complaints. We're triggering investigations. We're not proactively monitoring the internet and saying, oh, somebody said something mean to someone else. We're, we also have political and journalistic exemptions. So it does not um, cover political speech. Uh, we have to be independent and arms like from government. And we clearly are. So again, I think the Australian parliament has been pretty firm in saying online harm doesn't have a place here. We want freedom of speech, but that doesn't mean freedom from consequences when you're harassing and abusing people. You pointed out that uh, different countries are approaching this differently, organizationally and from a regulatory perspective. And as a result, there's a little bit of a patchwork of regulatory requirements for platforms that exist globally. What do you think is the potential or the uh, opportunity for jurisdictions working together globally uh, to create more common standards? And what are some of the obstacles and maybe some of the opportunities for that? Right. Well, I think there's tons of opportunity and I'm really happy. I mean, 2023 was really a tipping point. And frankly, I think the rapid emergence of generative AI really caused governments to step back and, and scrutinize. So if you look at the, in 2023, we worked with the Irish Audit, that's their, their parliament for over two years to establish an online safety commissioner. They now have one. It took six years of deliberation, but the UK passed their online safety bill. And one of the things that we started with the UK, Ireland, and Fiji, who also have an uh, online safety commissioner, was a global online safety regulators network akin to ICPEN, which is the the consumer and competition regulators, or the Global Privacy Assembly, which are the privacy commissioners and data protection commissioners that have um, formed a group. We formed that group, and I chaired that last year. Um, as we, we established a government structure, we've now expanded from four regulators to seven, now includes France, uh, South Africa, and South Korea, and we wanted geographic and cultural diversity. We're starting to achieve that. The Digital Services Act will also designate accountable authorities or DSA coordinators in each of the member 27 member states by February of this year. So we expect we'll have more on board. And there are uh, countries like Canada and uh, New Zealand who have been actively working at this. So I guess what I would say was we'll never achieve perfect symmetry. We want to avoid a splinter net of regulations. What we're trying to achieve is what, what we would say is a degree of regulatory coherence. So having the first mover advantage, we, for instance, have um, five sets of codes in place around illegal content. 
and we're consulting on standards right now. The UK and Ireland are putting out codes around the same issues. So we're looking at those areas of intersection and we're trying to make sure that we can coordinate and build on each other's efforts to the extent possible. I think all of us uh, as independent regulators also reg uh, understand that there need to be risk-based and tiered approaches to regulation. So what we expect of the, the very large companies may be different from those that are startups or early stage companies. Yeah, on, on that last point, as we often just think of the very large social media companies and how these laws apply to them, but there are many others, smaller companies, medium-sized companies, and many of them often feel overwhelmed or unsure about those regulations. They may often not have even a dedicated you know, person inside the company dealing with this. Any advice you have for them how to approach regulation? And, and certainly most interesting, obviously, from the Australian perspective, but even more broadly, if they want to do the right thing, but really don't really know how to even approach it. About six years ago, we started an initiative called Safety by Design. And we consulted with more than 180 organizations, including technology companies of all sizes. And the premise is pretty basic. When we think about getting into cars today, we take for granted that there are airbags and there are anti-lock brakes and that seatbelts were embedded. I'm probably giving away my age to a certain degree, but I remember riding in my parents' station wagon in the early 1970s in the front bench seat with no seatbelts on because seatbelts weren't required then. But in you know, until Unsafe at Any Speed and Ralph Nader showed the data uh, to parliaments and Cong Congress all over the globe that embedding seatbelts would significantly reduce traffic fatalities and governments legislated, they're now international standards. We now take them for granted. But it wasn't always that way. And when governments did legislate back in the 60s and 70s, the car manufacturers pushed back. But now they compete on safety and safety ratings. What I've been saying for a long time is I believe the technology industry, which has been largely unregulated up until now for, for more than 30 years, is that they need their seatbelt moment. And what companies need to do and understand is to think about and understand the risks and the harms up front and to build these platforms with safety as a primary consideration and human rights and human centricity at the front end rather than retrofitting after something goes wrong. So in our consultation, we came up with three principles that all of the companies could agree upon, that user empowerment was important. What how did we define service provider responsibility and what does meaningful transparency and accountability look like? And we took that a step farther by developing risk assessment tools that are free and interactive and they will, we have one for startups and early stage companies and then one for much, much larger companies, which is obviously a lot more detailed and it talks about a culture of safety and how things need to talk, start from the top down. We've also developed tools for in, investors and VCs they're often the adults in the room. And you don't want this to be a checklist exercise, but starting from somewhere, getting these developers and these early stage companies to be thinking about how their platforms and technologies can be misused. Really, if you're thinking about safety at the front end, you're building a more positive, a safer experience, a less toxic environment. To me, it makes good business sense. Um, but for some reason, and this was my experience in 22 years within the technology industry, 
safety was seen as a cost center. It was seen as something that was disposable. And I think what we've seen with the recent layoffs, starting with Twitter X, but also being followed by Meta, Microsoft, and others, they saw that Elon Musk ripped off the Band-Aid and fired 80% of the trust and safety team and nothing significant happened by, by way of regulation. What has actually transpired and how it's impacted the platforms, that's up for discussion and it's a different case. But we really need to change the mindset of these companies from the leadership from the top down, but throughout, throughout the process so that engineers are thinking about safety, so that pro product designers are thinking about safety and those that are marketing these products Innovation and investment are really critical and in, the, in this age of AI and immersive and, and invasive technologies. If companies wait to think about safety considerations uh, until after things are extricated into the wild and or in, in, until children start being raped and assaulted in metaverse environments, wearing full sensory haptic suits and in hyper-realistic environments where things will feel more visceral, it's going to be too late. So we need to think about how we actually change that mindset of trust and safety as really an enabler and an asset rather than as a cost center or an afterthought. Love that uh, analogy about the seatbelt moment as well. You mentioned that change of mindset and regulators obviously doing their part, charging ahead, creating the frameworks. What are other groups or all of us individually, what can we do to help create a safer online web? Any advice you have for whether it's the normal listener, whether it's the company executives, read any other group that you can think of to help just create a safer online environment for all of us. I would say as regulators, we're really just getting started. And a number of us are using what we call systems and process powers. And we have the basic online safety expectations where we've used transparency to really show what companies are and are not doing. Yeah, in the case of our um, 12 notices to more than 27 services, we were focused on um, sexual extortion and child sexual um, exploitation material. We've really seen selective transparency from the technology companies when you actually ask them questions that they, in formats where they don't really want to, it's very sensitive for them and very uncomfortable for them to share what's actually happening under the hood. Um, I think that really gives us a much more realistic view of what is happening and what is not. So regulation is one way to achieve that. In places like the United States, where you don't have any regulation, you see this in institutional investors making an impact. You're seeing the impact of whistleblowers like Francis Haugen and now Arturo Bahar. You're seeing litigation and class action suits and the, the movement of the attorney generals making a difference. But I do think we, as everyday consumers, and I hate the fact that tech, in technology, we call our customers users. <laughs> it says something, doesn't it? But to me, the internet and the technologies that we're using every day have become essential utilities. We should be, be demanding that companies build these um, with safety in mind, not only as they do cars, but we have food safety standards. We have consumer protection standards that pre prevent things from blowing up on our face. We have conducted this massive social experiment that has have seen a lot of benefits, but we've also seen a lot of the harms. So 
that's one thing. I think there are tons that NGOs are already doing and government agencies like eSafety in terms of prevention and education. Uh, 95% of Australian parents tell us that online safety is one of their preeminent parenting challenges. So we spend a lot of time developing uh, resources and, informa and providing information about how to engage with their children online, how to keep them safer. We also co-design materials with vulnerable communities because online abuse manifests differently against women versus men, against um, minorities, uh, against um, communities of, of LGBTQI plus people, uh, those with a disability. So we need to be doing that fundamental research as well to understand how people are being impacted, um, what the harms are, what the impacts are, and then we have to develop those intervention mechanisms in response. But we should be demanding that companies make their products safer by design. Otherwise, Regulators are just going to be playing a big game of whack-a-mole. We cannot have a safer online world if the fundamental uh, tools and services we're using every day are not. There is no question that the Digital Services Act and other online regulations will add additional layers of moderation to our online lives. To put this into perspective, I turn once again to my colleague, Tom Siegel. Tom, what is your honest opinion about online regulations such as the Digital Services Act, the Online Safety Act? I don't like regulation of online speech. The way that I grew up was very much in the with the democratic values of giving people the voice and the space to share their opinion and for information to be freely shared and consumed. I think that's very important for us in individual freedom and for a society and democratic society to thrive. And so the moment that we have governments interfering with that, I think that creates a lot of potential challenges. On the other hand, I do feel it's needed. I think we're at a place where platforms themselves are, are not able to ensure the high quality, healthy experience on the web without some of these additional guardrails being in place. And so I do believe some basic standards and regulation along the lines of what the Digital Services Act in many ways is trying to do, can have a positive, can make a positive contribution and will outweigh the negative concerns that I and many others have about governments interfering freedom of speech of, of people online. Tom, for somebody like me who's just an avid online user scrolling hours every day, through Instagram, Reddit, Twitter, we should call it X, but I'm kind of refusing to at this point. What changes will they expect to see in the next few years in their experience? On the user side, we, we will be seeing lots of uh, new types of modalities of formats. So right now we have a lot of image and text and video. Some of us have tried out virtual experiences. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. We see with the emergence of AI, a lot more non-human and, and hybrid kind of content types and content in general emerging as well. I think we will see a lot more uh, formal requirements that platforms have to fulfill around user authentication, I believe, and making sure that it's clear who says what. And yeah, generally, the internet just has been very predictable, and I'm really looking forward to the exciting changes that will come with the new products and the new services, the new opportunities that an ever-evolving open web provide. 
I do believe that from a safety perspective, the internet is not in a good state right now. I think there's a lot of objectively measured data that shows us that there's never been a more risky online world than, than we're facing today. And that is concerning. And a lot of things are being done, many different stakeholders. But I'm while I'm pessimistic about the current state of the web, I'm very optimistic about what can be done to create a better web. That's one of the reasons why, you know, myself and Carmo and those or you working on this, because we do believe that we can get to that place. And government regulation is one way to get there with, within reason while being careful. But I'm excited about the opportunity that it, it provides to limit and dial back some of the worst excesses of the internet and the harm that it that they yeah, result in. Me too. I'm really optimistic and hopefully this podcast helps people understand a little bit more of the work that teams like us are doing to help make the web a safer place. Next time on Click to Trust, we'll discover how online legislation like the Digital Services Act may impact emergent AI technologies, as well as how Gen AI may impact our lives. With trust and safety and guardrails, there's a big philosophical area that we're wading into of like, if this is a tool, where should the onus really lie as far as how you use it? You know, like knife can be used to do very productive things and you can also murder someone with it. So should the onus be on the maker of the tool or the person using the tool? That's a huge question. 